Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you're within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribed with your email address, I'm going to need you to follow me today. I don't even want to tell you what number take this is. But if anybody in your life told you that life was going to be simple and the things that you were interested in were going to be easy, you should, um, you should not listen to people like that anymore. I've had internet issues. Uh, it's actually been a really good week, but I've had, tonight I've had internet issues, now technical issues with recording, and the irony of ironies is that I'm at home base. This is actually, it is now apparently easier for me to record on the road than it is for me to record at my home. But that's okay, because I am here to bring you guys a great show. I wanted to start today I wanted to start today by asking a question. Isn't it enough to say that something is a tragedy? I've been thinking about this in relation to uh, the horrible, horrible shooting that occurred in Atlanta, Georgia. And I've gone on a few rants about this already, as I've kind of said, this is them. I have, I've been having some issues getting the show recorded tonight. Um, I've gone on a few rants about this already, but that's the question that's kind of inspiring it. See, I, I think, I don't think, I know that as humans, we require meaning, Right meaning and purpose for our lives, but also for the events that surround us. Now, I wasn't doing this show. I wasn't writing consistently when um, Breonna Taylor was killed by the police, when Duncan Lemp was killed by the police, when George Floyd was killed by the police. And of course, the women in Atlanta, Georgia, weren't killed by the police. They were killed by a madman. But what I've, I've kind of thought about is, you know, if I'm going to take what I, you know, when I used to be really interested in like FBI shows and, you know, criminal profiling, and serial killers, seems like a spree killing to me. But we're supposed to believe that this is white supremacy. I'm going to need you to stick with me for this because here's a hard truth to lay on people. As far as I can tell, because I've been hearing for the last year with little to no evidence presented that there has been a rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans. And the only person who has presented evidence is a comedian, Stephen Crowder. 
And what he shows through video and seemingly accurate information is that it's not white supremacy hurting Asian Americans. It's not white people. It's blacks and Arabs. I've seen the Arabs thing, I've, I've, but, but definitely African-Americans. I don't, there's no pleasure that I have saying something like this, but I'm not going to sit here and lie. And so when I watch the pornography on CNN, because that's what it is, this is disaster porn. I don't remember. I think maybe it was Bill Maher. Who we're going to get to a clip of him, hopefully later on in the show. Bill Maher, I think was the one who, who had used that or maybe not, but I don't know who coined it, but this is disaster porn. I was in a hotel last night and I left for dinner and the C and they had CNN on in the lobby. And the Chiron said something about the Georgia shooting. I came back from dinner a couple hours later and the Chiron said there was something, something about the Georgia shooting. I went downstairs for my cup of coffee in the morning and the Chiron said there was something about the mass shooting. And when I left the hotel, same thing. The Chiron said something about the mass shooting. There is nobody who loves a tragedy like Okay, I have now switched to my, um, I have now switched from using my computer to using my cell phone and my awesome Zoom recorder that I purchased because apparently, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's my computer or my internet, but apparently the gods hate me tonight. So uh, sorry for that. I don't know how this is going to end up in post, but I'm going to try and, I'm just going to try and piece things together as best I can. Now, where was I? I was saying that CNN is producing porn. <laughs> they are frankly less reputable than the most um, than the most scuzzy porn producer that you could think of, or at least that's my opinion on the matter. Because as I was saying, when I left, when I when I went in and I left the hotel, they were um, they were just covering this nonstop, and and in, and in the face of in the immediate here this is what i'll say in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy like what we just witnessed i think we need to sit and say this was a tragedy and when we learn more that's when we can find the deeper meaning i hope that makes sense to you certainly does to me so I want to play a video for you guys from Brad Palumbo, who is, um, who is an editor over at the Foundation for Economic Education, which is a great organization. I'm a big fan of them, and I've seen some of his work, and I like a lot of his work. He was recently testifying in front of a Senate committee. At the Foundation for Economic Education, he was previously a media and journalist fellow. Chairman, Ranking Member Paul, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify here today. I'm an editor at the Foundation for Economic Education, where I conduct policy reporting and analysis. And I've been doing this for several years now, but this week was the first time that tears flooded my eyes when I reported a story. I was reporting an interview that the Associated Press did with doctors across the globe. Warning that lockdown orders are leading to an international epidemic in child suicide. We are very surprised 
by the intensity of the desire to die among children who may be 12 or 13 years old, a French doctor said. We sometimes have, a ch have children of nine who already went want to die. It is a genuine wish to end their lives, this doctor told the AP. And he told the AP that the number of youth suicide attempts his hospital sees in a month has more than doubled amid pandemic restrictions. Here in the US, the Centers for Disease Control reported that 25% of young adults considered suicide during the COVID lockdowns, while overall mental health issues appear to have spiked as well. CDC data show a 24% increase in emergency room mental health visits for children ages 5 to 11 compared to 2019. Among adolescents aged 12 to 17, that increase is 31%. The spike in depression and suicidality triggered by the social isolation of pandemic lockdowns is most certainly not what proponents of these measures intended. But as Henry Hazlitt wrote in Economics in One Lesson, responsible policymaking requires us to look beyond intentions and immediate effects. It means taking into account the policy's indirect consequences and its collateral damage. And sweeping government interventions tend to be plagued by unintended consequences, sometimes lethal ones. There has been perhaps no more dramatic example of this lethality than the unintended consequences of pandemic lockdowns. Government officials took drastic, unprecedented steps of closing businesses en masse, criminalizing citizens' livelihoods, and essentially placing healthy Americans under a form of house arrest. The lockdowns and restrictions have been normalized, but they are not normal. My colleagues and I at the Foundation for Economic Education have spent the last year chronicling the myriad ways that COVID lockdowns have led to unintended consequences. The aforementioned mental health crisis is only one of the many that have emerged as a result of these unprecedented government restrictions. We have also seen an enormous uptick in addiction and drug overdoses. According to the CDC, over 81,000 drug overdose deaths occurred in the US in the 12 months ending in May 2020. That's the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period. Now, the full data will take years to analyze, but state and local level examples of this tragic trend are too numerous to list. Meanwhile, an analysis from the National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice found that domestic violence spiked 8.1% after lockdowns. The study's authors said that this figure is, if anything, a floor, not a ceiling. It's an underestimate. None of this even touches on the economic devastation wrought by government pandemic lockdowns. According to the business website Yelp, 60% of the 163,735 businesses uh, that use the website, which have closed, will never reopen. Small businesses, in particular, have been hit hardest by COVID pandemic lockdowns. More than 100,000 small businesses permanently shuttered last year, but polling shows that 60% of small business owners worry that their business won't survive until June of 2021. From mental health to drug overdoses to domestic violence, the immeasurable economic and social damage that lockdowns have wrought cannot be made whole by any amount of welfare, by any amount of stimulus checks, or by any amount of business grants. Lockdowns and continued pandemic restrictions are what's crushing the American spirit and the American economy. Neither the Paycheck Protection Program or other fraud-rife and inefficient federal programs can heal this ailment. Policymakers who continue to perpetuate lockdown policies and heavy-handed pandemic restrictions must discover the humility necessary to see that their sweeping actions have consequences beyond their control, beyond their understanding, and beyond their intentions. Until they do so, millions of Americans will continue to suffer silently. Thank you. And thank you very much for your testimony. We'll now go to... I wanted to play that in full because, well, because you probably, if you're just a normal person, you know, if you're just somebody who's um, 
living your life and trying to live it the best way you can and you're not a news junkie, you're not going to come across that. You're not going to see it on the pages of CNN or Fox, maybe Fox News, but probably not. But you are going to see it on this show, which is why you should share this show with everybody you know. This is the better sense-making that I'm talking about. It's been a year. We have to stop pretending. The only thing that I would disagree with with Brad in, in his speech, and I will caveat this by saying I might say a similar thing in front of a Senate committee, is that he called these unintended consequences. I think the argument for unintended consequences went out the door about two months into the pandemic. After about two much two months, you had health officials, you had doctors, you had you had public health experts coming out and saying that what we were doing or what the government was doing to us wasn't working. And if you want more evidence of this, you should check out the content recommendation for this week at beenawake.com. It's an interview with Dr. Bhattacharya, who's a professor at Stanford University and a public health expert. He is also one of the original signers of the Great Barrington Declaration. The guy interviewing him is um, Jun Ying An, and he's a pretty cool dude who I've recently become acquainted with. Really nice guy. Uh, hope to have him on the show soon enough. He's a busy guy, though. He's a senior in high school and interviewing a world-renowned scientist about, uh, and, and really, honestly, it's a tour de force. It's a long interview. It's almost two hours, but it's worth your time investment. Why? Because you need to understand just how bad the lockdowns are and just how unscientific the government has been. And you need to be able to say something to people when you hang out with them. At the very least, you can say, hey, listen, you know what? I can't tell you everything, but go check out this guy, LB Muniz. He puts good content recommendations out, and he hosts a pretty good show. <laughs> or you could send them to an interview like this, because it's, um, I, I don't know how, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to ask people to do things that I won't do myself. I'm not quite sure how yet. But I need to figure out how to talk to people in my life about 15 days later, right? And, and I, I wrote a little bit about this in a post I did on Wednesday, and I called it, um, I called it, There Are Four Lights, Thoughts a Year After 15 Days. This isn't and by and so I'm not saying anything scientific here. If you want something scientific, you should go to the you should go and listen to that interview I just recommended to you. And this isn't going to be one of my dissertations that have a lot of citations. This is this is the back seat of a stranger's mind a year after the world changed forever. I spent my childhood reading books about a world that had ended and something worse taking its place. I watched movies of dystopia where you were introduced to a hero fighting to survive in a world gone mad. 
Turns out it wasn't the climate. Turns out it wasn't zombies. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on who you ask. Turns out it was people believing that staying inside was the only way to live their lives. I remember sitting at work the day J.B. Pritzker came on television saying something to the effect of, due to increasing concerns about the virus, I will be shutting down non-essential business for two weeks. I was sitting in my cubicle, just returning from a trip to another state. Same, same trip I just went on, actually. The president of my company was standing outside of his office, leaning up against the wall, and I looked at him and asked, Are we essential? Yes, he answered. So I turned back to my computer to send another email. We weren't wearing masks at this point because the government didn't want you buying them just yet. I remember wearing gloves to the supermarket, and like most people, I couldn't buy normal food items. Now, in my instance, there was still plenty of food, but many of the normal things that I would think to buy were gone. As the two weeks came and went, the tyrant, the governor, extended the shutdowns, claiming emergency powers. Certainly, 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 2020 showed me what I had already believed. Most people in government, and in particular the legislature, do not care about their constituents. <laughs> I said pretty early, probably like a week and a half into the lockdowns, that I didn't think that they were going to accomplish what they set out to do. And this cerebral insight and, and that like this whole idea of a lockdown wasn't really going to work and that it wasn't and, and that it was um, it was kind of ridiculous. I just made a simple observation, really. Every restaurant was closed. With the exception of places like McDonald's, Taco Bell, KFC, Burger King, Wendy's. All the major national chains were considered essential. But the taqueria on the corner was not. <laughs> I'm sure it was the same for you, but work was a mess. Nobody knew what to do. So we were given projects that didn't mean anything. When I finished one thing, I'd be told to do something else. And while I worked remotely often, and I still do in my travels... I wasn't set up with a home office because I was a few days away from moving. I sat at my kitchen table doing what was literally called busy work. You could speak a little more freely in those days. Maybe I was just foolish enough to do so. I said a few weeks into the lockdown that they didn't know what they were doing and herd immunity would be the only solution to a virus like this. I still believe that I'm right. Zoom calls came in the spring, and there was a time where we were all talking to people we hadn't seen for a while, and that was neat. When the summer hit, we could kind of do things. I started traveling again about this time. 
Unfortunately, one of the things you could do over the summer was protest and riot. Massive demonstrations swept the country and fed into an already polarized nation. We learned that mostly peaceful was code for some buildings on fire. We also learned that so-called racial justice was a sufficient enough reason to break quarantine. But you couldn't break quarantine to have a funeral for a loved one. You could march in the streets, but you couldn't witness the birth of your child. Today, a year later, much of this is still true. Now, the faceless roam the earth, removing joy from their hosts. You don't see people smiling when they take a walk wearing a mask. And there are even some who will wear a mask indoors. We wiped our food and washed our boxes with bleach because someone was mistaken, while mocking a president for talking about experimental technology. I wonder if anyone still does that now. There was a lot I learned about myself in 2020, but I learned even more about humanity and the depravity of those in power. It's why I started writing again. It's why I do this show. And it's why I'm here to give you a better understanding. My headline today, the headline of this story, is one of the best television episodes ever produced in history. It comes from Star Trek, The Next Generation. Captain Jean-Luc Picard has been taken hostage by the Cardassian Empire and is being tortured. First for information, and later for the sake of it. The torturer offers Picard an end to the suffering, if only, if only he will admit that there are five lights when there are clearly four. I don't pretend what I'm about to say means I will have a happy ending. Like it, like Picard did in The Next Generation. But I will always say there are four lights. So thank you for your listen. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing at beenawake.com. And I want you to know that free men and women can defeat tyrants and thieves. After all, if Epictetus the Stoic found freedom as a slave, so can we in 2021 and beyond. I had a, um, a great interview last week, and in fact, I recorded another interview this week, so you're getting a heck of content, hella content from me, which you might think would, would have me not do this podcast four times, but here I am. Um, I had a great interview with James Gentleman of the Blackbird Podcast. I really highly, highly, highly recommend you listen to it, and if you like that, go check out his Substack blackbird.substack.com We talked a little bit about writing and my process um, and he kind of shared that he was he was working and trying to get better about writing and frankly 
he's got a lot of material that he can that he can start to write about because he's living in Minneapolis. And the trial of George Floyd is starting. I'm not sure, by the way, how much I'm going to cover that on this show. It's um, because I'd want to make sure I do it right. And I am trying to be very conscious of not taking on too much. Uh, if you want me to take on more, by the way, visit binawake.com slash donate and let me know. <laughs> but seriously, go give James some love. The interview I have coming out this Sunday is going to be with Drew Hancock of Lockout Days. Uh, a young blood, for sure. Really good, really articulate. Uh, you know, Great talk with him as well. Been a lot of fun kind of getting to know different people in this content creation space. It's a nice, nice group of dudes. And hopefully I'll interview some women at some point too. So on Monday, I wrote a little ditty about open borders and closed borders and why I think it's a stupid debate. So we've talked about political binaries before on the show, right? And so like we can, I, I think there's something to be said for a dualistic argument to things, or at least that's kind of how I'm operating right now. I could be wrong. I could change my mind at some point. But that's not the same thing as a political binary because a political binary is about putting, ter- putting things in terms of zero and one. And we see this in most of the major political arguments that, that, that your average American has. One of these is open borders. Oh, the question, rather, of open versus closed borders. And by the way, this isn't unique to just Republicans and Democrats because I think this is a trap. I think this is a lot, a status trap, a logic trap. And it's and, 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 and I think people should be smarter than to fall for it. But, of course, they didn't have better sense-making before I created this show. So what can I expect? So let's talk about what happened, or rather what's happening on the southern border. According to the AP, hundreds of immigrant children and teenagers have been detained at the Border Patrol tent facility in packed conditions, with some sleeping on the floor because there aren't enough mats. Despite concerns about the coronavirus, the children are kept so closely together that they can touch the person next to them, the lawyers said. Some have to wait five days or more to shower, and there isn't always soap available, just shampoo. Now, I actually will shower with, I will wash my body with shampoo in hotels, but that's not the point. I was actually, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. <laughs> I had a shower thought recently. Um, given that I travel so much. I know I say that a lot, by the way, but it's, I think we kind of take, <laughs> we really take it for granted in the U.S. that we can just shower with hot water every day. One of the hotels I stayed at didn't really have like hot water. It was just kind of warm. And there was a part of me that wanted to complain to the front desk about it. I'll be honest with you. But that that kind of got, that kind of triggered me just to think and instead to put this in the frame of gratitude of how lucky, how blessed, how rich we are as a society that I think most people in the U.S. would consider it horrible that you couldn't get a hot shower every day if you so cho- if you so choosed. And yet for most of human history, <laughs> a shower was a luxury, let alone a hot one. Oops. 
President Joe Biden's administration denied lawyers access to the tent facilities. During the administration of former President Donald Trump, attorney visits to the Border Patrol stations revealed severe problems. So, you know, Joe, Joe Biden is already starting to commit his first human rights abuses. Isn't that isn't that isn't that charming? I mean, let you know, let's leave aside bombing Syria because every president does that. He's committing human rights abuses on our own soil. It's here's a quote from a lawyer. It's pretty surprising that the administration talks about the importance of transparency and then won't let the attorneys for children set eyes on where they're staying. I find that very disappointing. That's from one of the lawyers uh, who was interviewed by the AP. Now, I also have a quote from MSNBC, from an MSNBC story that says more than 3,200 unaccompanied migrant children are being housed in Customs and Border Protection holding facilities, NBC News reported Monday. This is all still going on, by the way. I've, I've, seen, I've seen reports at this point of 100,000 people coming to have tried to cross the border in the U.S. More than half were being held in so-called ice boxes not intended for children because detainees can only be held in the cells for a maximum of three days. I also have a little bit from Breitbart.com. Most concerning in, in these apprehended is... Uh, is the number of unaccompanied alien children smuggled across the border and apprehended by Border Patrol agents. <coughs> Get a copy editor. In January, agents apprehended 5,871 unaccompanied minors, official reports indicate. In February, that number climbed to 9,297, the CBP report states. This represents a single-month increase of 58% and a 166% jump from last February's 3,490. Miller said that more than 3,000 of the unaccompanied minors are under the age of 12. The remaining minors are between 13 and 17 years of age. So if we're looking at, I don't know if he's talking about the 5,000 number or that 9,000 number. Either way, we're talking about half. It's either half or 60%. The apprehension of 18,945 family unit aliens in February also jumped from the previous month's total of 7,490 and the 7,117 apprehended in February 2020. The increased apprehension in February represents the 10th straight month of increases in apprehensions. The previous low point came in April 2020 when the apprehensions fell to 17,104. Here's my analysis. Apparently, no matter what news source you look at, everyone is recognizing that there are a lot of people trying to get into America and the government doesn't know what to do with them. So my so why why is this happening, right? That's the question I'm going to try and answer right now. Immigration is just one of the many wedge issues the tyrants and thieves of Washington D.C. use to keep the people divided. Depending on who you ask, there might be different explanations as to why. Democrat talking points will say that immigration is part of the quote American story that every immigrant who wants to come in should be let in. I think Nancy Pelosi just said they're part of the fabric of our nation. Republican talking points will say that immigration is part of the, quote, American story, that every immigrant who wants to come in should be let in. Just make it legal. 
Some in the right wing will argue immigration with no checks violates the rights of natural-born citizens as they don't have any real control over federal policy but has to deal with ri- and also has to deal with rising costs in a more competitive labor market, especially on the lower economic ends where it matters. Some on the left wing will argue immigration with no checks is a human right, and if you inhibit someone's ability to enter the country, you are a bigoted racist who doesn't realize that we need immigrants because Americans are too lazy to do certain jobs in the labor market, especially on the lower ends where it matters. All of these types of people are playing a game with with other people's lives, and none of the politicians give a shit. The question of human migration in the 21st century is about as big a topic as one can envision. We should recognize first and foremost that there is no simple solution. And secondly, that that human beings respond to incentives. It's not by accident that more people are trying to, and they are people, not that that, not that that was up for debate, but people who, especially like open borders crowd, like to pretend like no human being is illegal. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a very useful rhetorical ploy, right? I don't, I treat those types of people with extreme skepticism because I'm not sure, because that's, that's propaganda. And when somebody's spewing propaganda like that, you're either a victim of propaganda or you're the propagandist. So it's not by accident that more people are trying to get into the United States now that the Biden administration has said they hope to pass amnesty for the Dreamers and others who live and work in America illegally. The same applies to the migrant caravans seen at the beginning of the Trump administration. People were hoping to get in before things were shut down. The debate between open and closed borders is one of the dumbest and I mean dumbest, binaries in political rhetoric. That one would assert with any certainty that borders must completely be open or completely closed shows a lack of critical thought that is indicative of the political mind. That anyone who takes a more nuanced approach would attach themselves to either label is a mistake that only a politician should make. To be fair, I have yet to come across someone who is, quote, closed borders in the way North Korea is. I have, by contrast, come across people who assert open borders are required and the only logical position to take. I do not believe, by the way, that either the Republicans or the Democrats want to solve the immigration question, just like they won't solve any of the other issues that those who give themselves willingly to government believe will happen. Like those who have made the dangerous journey from Central and South America to the United States southern border, they are responding to incentives. Their power builds the more you get caught in an irreconcilable binary. The people coming up from Central and South America are only responding to the incentives created by the ambiguity in U.S. policy. This ambiguity is used to divide the citizenry and has the added benefit of bringing in more people to add to the confusion. The people coming to the southern border are not the educated, they are not the well-off, and they are those who have no better choice than to risk their lives to walk or ride from their home country to the chance at a new life in America. 
From a policy perspective, it seems like there could be some kind of solution created. This is why I argue that those in positions of power do not want a solution. Now let's answer the question, will it work? I guess to answer this question, we'd have to think about which one of the four ideas I presented above is correct. Right now, the situation at the border does not seem to be getting better. But seeing as immigration reform is a second-term thing in American politics, there will not be any serious talk of bringing legislation forward until the Republicans either eke, really until the Republicans can eke back some kind of majority in either the House or the Senate. In case that missed you, I'm going to say it again. Mark my words, there will be no serious talk of immigration legislation until after the 2024 presidential election or when the Republicans gain control over one House of Congress, whichever one comes first. Like the migrant crisis in Europe, my heart breaks for people who have been left with no other option and become the unwitting pawns in a game that they don't know is being played. Of course, most of the people I meet are playing that same game. For what? I haven't the foggiest clue. One of the, um, one of the big issues in the immigration debate right now is that um, a lot of NGOs have advised, I guess you could say from, from, from the perspective of somebody crossing Mexico, rightfully advised the, these migrants to say and claim refugee status. Now, my understanding is this is a technical argument that violates the UN like Charter on Refugees, not that I particularly care about the UN. But you're supposed to... Um, if you are a refugee, you're supposed to claim stat. You're supposed to claim asylum in the first safe country that you reach. So, for example, when my family was escaping communist Cuba, not that I did, my members of my family did though. They first went to Mexico and then claimed asylum at the embassy in Mexico, and because of the wet foot, dry foot policy, they were immediately granted asylum. I don't offhand know enough about the uh, particulars of, um, you know, Central and South American politics. I know like in places like Ecuador, they have some, you know, Venezuela obviously has a lot of uh, political strife and economic strife due to socialism. I know Nicaragua and Ecuador have had some political instability as of late. I know that, you know, I know that there's reason for people to want to leave there to come to America. Who wouldn't? Um, but whether they qualify as refugees is another matter entirely. And unfortunately, because this is a political binary, because this is something that is used to divide people, because that they, nobody bothers to start from a place of understanding, what we're left with are hundreds, thousands of children in cages on the southern border and a media and a press who doesn't care because they like the person doing it better. Let's have some fun with good old Bill Maher, maybe. I don't think I... Uh, 
I thought I, I should have pulled this up already because I forgot I'm not using the computer. I'm using the phone. Um, so uh, Bill Maher recently had a little rant. Um, I have never really been a fan of Bill Maher. Uh, didn't really know him when he was like doing the whole, um, when he was doing the whole uh, politically incorrect. I truthfully speaking, I look at him as a. Um, I look at him as kind of as this. In my eyes, he is just this corporate figure. I I really hate the show format that he does. I hate Clapter. I hate same thing with like the John Oliver, Stephen Colbert. Um, you know, John Stewart was the one who pioneered it, and you know he was. He doesn't seem horrible, and he kind of, he definitely was somebody who got out when it was time. Um, but the media, but the medium of this like this this fake infotainment show, scripted fake infotainment show, highly produced infotainment show, is um it, it just it, it 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 rubs me the wrong way to say the least. But let's play from this. Uh, let's listen to this clip. I'm going to pause and kind of go through it and we'll uh, we're going to break down this video. Uh, I guess the the basic rule, the basic idea here is that Bill Maher is saying that we're losing to China, I guess. And finally, new rule, you're not going to win the battle for the 21st century if you are a silly people. And Americans are a silly people. That's the classic phrase from Lawrence of Arabia when Lawrence tells his Bedouin allies that as long as they stay a bunch of squabbling tribes, they will remain a silly people. Well, we're the silly people now. Do you know who doesn't care that there's a stereotype of a Chinese man in a Dr. Seuss book? China. All 1.4 billion of them could give a crouching tiger flying fuck. Now, he's already, I, again, like, I hate the, oh, I'm going to laugh at this. Um, because he said fuck? I don't quite get it. Now, he's already set this up in a way that's incorrect, right? Because there might be some people in China who care about this. I don't think so. Not really about the Dr. Seuss thing. But he talks about the 1.4 billion Chinese people as if they're a monolith. And of course, they're not. They are the slaves of a communist government. Because they're not a silly people. If anything, they are as serious as a prison fight. Look, we all know China does bad stuff. They break promises about Hong Kong autonomy. They put Uyghurs in camps and punish dissent. And we don't want to be that. But it's got to be something between authoritarian government that tells everyone what to do and a representative government that can't do anything at all. So again, another lie, because we don't have a representative government. We have an oligarchy. In two generations, China has built 500 entire cities from scratch. Moved Some of those the majority of their huge population from poverty to the middle class. <laughs> again, like so, like here, this was the interesting thing about it, right? Because I, I've obviously criticized China. I had a couple of weeks ago where I talked about the Uyghur camps, but I am not going to be somebody who is going to carry water for the Chinese regime. So yes, they've built cities. And by the way, there has been a lot of economic development in China. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. What I'm pointing out here, because this is something I've been noticing, um, not surprising from a lot of left-wing figures, 
that like we're just kind of supposed to accept the reality that China is better than us, that the Chinese government is better than the U.S. government, or that the Chinese people are better than the American people, right? Because because Bill Maher is Bill Maher is setting up this false equivalency between the 1.4 billion Chinese and the 350 million Americans. And mostly cornered the market in 5G and pharmaceuticals. That's true. Oh, and they bought Africa. <laughs> there's nothing. Road this is why I hate the medium, by the way, because there's nothing funny about that. It's like a weird observation. It's kind of like a dry observation, so I can get the humor. But it's like you got the one. I just oh, it gets me mad. Biggest infrastructure project in history, indebting not just that continent but large parts of Asia, Europe, and the Middle East to the people who built their roads, bridges, and ports. If you want to go anywhere in the world these days, you better have a yen for travel. <laughs> yen for travel. Oh, stop it. I don't get it. In China alone, they have 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. America has none. Our fast... We do have an interstate highway system and buses and planes. So, like, this is uh, this is another weird, progressive, like, wet dream. High-speed rail makes no sense to me. This train is the train that goes around the zoo. <laughs> California also, wanted also, to build high-speed rail <laughs> connecting the... Also... The, the rail industry in this country is nationalized, so it's the governments not the or the governments are the ones not doing it. And in China, when they want to cross land, they just say, you don't live here anymore because the people don't have rights, Bill Maher. That's why they can build so much rail. Oh, and, you know, before that, they were living through Mao's Great Leap Forward where, you know, untold millions, billions of people maybe died. Entire state, but alas, could not. We're six billion in the hole, just trying to finish the track connecting the vital hubs of Bakersfield and Merced. <laughs> I believe, by the way, I believe, by the way, that high-speed rail is um, being that project. Uh, like you know, countless tens of millions of dollars have gone to Nancy Pelosi's husband. Nobody, one giant leap if you're a raisin. On a national level, we've been having infrastructure week every week since 2009, but we never do anything. Half the country is having a never-ending woke competition deciding whether Mr. Potato Head has a dick. That one's pretty good. And the other half believes we have to stop the lizard people because they're eating babies. We are a silly people. Even when we all agree on something, like getting rid of the penny, no. The inertia, the ass covering, the graft, the lawyers, the cowardice. Nothing ever moves in this impacted colon of a country. We see a problem and we ignore it, lie about it, fight about it, endlessly litigate it, sunset closet, kick it down the road, and then write a bill where a half-assed solution doesn't kick in for 10 years. China sees... Nothing. I mean, that's all true. China sees a problem and they fix it. They build a dam. We debate what to rename it. <laughs> That's why their airports... Again, the Chinese, if they're going to build a dam and there's a person in the way, they just kill the person. Look like this, and ours look like this. <laughs> in San Francisco, it took 10 years 
just to get two bus lines through environmental review. The Big Dig, a tunnel in Boston, took 16 years, and don't get me started on my solar hookup. He's holding a sign about waiting for solar energy because, again, China that's the leftist pipe dream. China once put a 57-story skyscraper in 19 days. They demolished and rebuilt the San Yuan Bridge in Beijing in 40... Do you see what I'm saying, though? Right? It's like we're supposed to, like, this, you know, okay, fine. You want to castigate the American people for being a little silly. I, I, I actually agree with that point. I think we're a failing, we're a, we're a waning empire in America. Right? We're a waning empire, and there's a lot of silly, stupid things that are being talked about. But Bill Maher is the one contributing to it, and his response is not to give you better sense-making, but to give you a lot of propaganda about what the Chinese can accomplish with no context. Three hours. We binge watch. They binge build. When COVID hit Wuhan, the city built a quarantine center with 4,000 rooms in 10 days, and they barely had to use it because they quickly arrested the spread of the disease. They were back to throwing by welding in swimming. By welding people into their apartment complexes. Fools. Well, we were stuck at home surfing the dark web for black market Charmin. That's not even a fun thing. <laughs> that joke just kind of sucks. We're not losing to China. We lost. The returns just haven't all come in yet. They made robots that check a kid's temperature and got their asses back in school. Most of our kids are still pretending to take Zoom classes while they watch TikTok and their brain cells slowly commit ritual suicide. <laughs> As George Bush once said, is our children learning? There's a progressive trend now to sacrifice merit for equity. Colleges are chucking the SAT and ACT test, and in New York, Mayor de Blasio announced merit would no longer decide who gets into the schools for advanced learners, but rather a lottery <laughs> system. You think China's doing that, letting political correctness get in the way of nurturing their best and brightest? You think Chinese colleges are offering courses in They're the sending their kids Star Trek, the sociology of Seinfeld? Like, so this is like a weird thing now where some of the disaffected left, generally speaking, there's a huge generational component here, right? You tend to notice it with older people. But like, just think this could probably have gone on, you know, Rush Limbaugh just a few years ago. This Old part. And surviving the coming zombie apocalypse. Those are real. And so is China. I've and written they are stories. Our lunch. I've written stories about like, crappy college classes before and believe me in an hour they'll they'll be hungry again and then okay well apparently we're supposed to just take that joke um again so i hope so did, i hope that was a, i hope that was pretty clear in that uh is like there's it, it, it's it's very it's it's exactly it is exactly what the press and the media did with the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. They choose to simultaneously castigate our culture and laud the accomplishments of the other culture when everything that Bill Maher pointed out 
is an example of the the authoritarian nature of their regime. And make no mistake, I spend so much time on this show and on the pages of BeenAwake.com pointing out the problems with our government and our culture. It's why I write. I'm writing to create a better culture. And culture isn't a monolith. Not even in China is it a monolith. If it was, they wouldn't have the Uyghurs causing problems. Culture is dynamic. It ebbs and flows like the tides of the ocean. But that doesn't make for a really crappy comedic segment on a show. The last thing I want to talk to you guys about is... uh, an article I'm pretty proud about, not going to lie. It's called Why You Should Fight for 15 and Take Even More. Understanding why a minimum wage exists has been a passion of mine for as long as I've studied economics and philosophy. In a class entitled Global Justice, we were asked to pick an injustice of the world for a term project and write about it. I chose the minimum wage. I wrote then that having a minimum wage was a massive injustice to the world and a free society should not have any government-mandated wage. When I looked for empirical data, required by the paper, required for the paper, of course, I found studies that both proved and disproved the economic benefit of a minimum wage. I'll address the basic economic case at the end of this piece, but I want to analyze the question from what I see as the cultural impact. So let's talk about mindset. Culture, amongst other things, inculcates a mindset in its people. The norms, practices, and beliefs that we call culture are in more ways than we'd like to admit the reason why most people think and feel the way that they do. There is always more to say, but for now, this is enough. One of the many reasons I reject progressive dogma is because it asserts an authoritarian mindset. The authoritarian mindset relies on two parallel tracks tracks to carry the train of progress. Those who must lead and those who must follow. Those are the two tracks. Those who must lead are marked by their status within the society. The academics, journalists, tycoons, celebrities, and politicians who are not only successful, but properly connected. It was the belief of early progressives that society must be run by the right kind of people, lest we be led astray. Those who must follow exist to benefit those who must lead. Without those who must lead, those who must follow are like a ship without a rudder. They are helium balloons released into the sky, carried by the wind in a directionless manner until they reach the top of the atmosphere and pop are extinguished from existence. Put another way, those who must follow are like dairy cows to be milked at the farmer's pleasure. Permission. Let's talk about permission. A central tenet of the progressive mindset is that those who must follow must ask permission from those who must lead if they want an improvement in their status. Given that those who must lead are in their position for a very good reason, they are the ones who know what is best for those who must follow. This is why those at the lowest end of the economic ladder 
believe that they must ask permission from those who must lead in order to earn more dollars at work. For them, what they are worth is a consequence of what those who are meant to lead tell them they are worth. This is why they will march, those who must follow will march and strike and protest, so those who must lead in government will ensure they are properly cared for. The government does this by passing what we call a minimum wage. These people do not think to learn something new. Though those who must follow do not think to learn something new, they do not think to leverage their position for a better one. They know that they will be cared for by those who must lead. While not exclusive towards those to those at the bottom of the wage ladder, those at the bottom of the wage ladder exemplify this thought pattern I'm trying to elucidate. Even as one commands a higher salary, those who must follow will still assert that the minimum wage is required, lest we all earn zero. Much like you wouldn't trust a physicist, let's talk a little bit about economics, yeah? Much like you wouldn't trust a physicist who says the earth is carried on the back of a titan, you shouldn't trust the public policy opinions of somebody who doesn't have a solid grounding in economic theory. From an economic perspective, the one thing someone with less experience has over someone with more experience is their willingness to work for a lower wage. Without this economic fact, it would be impossible for anyone to get ahead in their career, as everybody would have the job they were perfectly suited for and nothing more. So let's talk, let me, let me, let me dilate a little bit on that idea. Without, without somebody who, is with, who has less experience being willing to work for less money, they can never get better and command a higher wage. They can never get the job that they want to do. Because if, if, if it wasn't the case that somebody will work for a lower wage so in the future they can earn a higher wage so that they can, so they can continue to gain marketable skills and invest in their human capital, we would all just already have the job that we were suited for. Nothing would matter. It wouldn't be the world. And reality as such would not be what we live in. Instituting a wage floor or a minimum wage means that on the margin... Employers will be more likely to hire someone with experience as the cost against somebody without the same experience as the cost to the business remains the same. Sound economic reasoning like this is why liberalism is anathema to, to progressive ideology. Liberalism and progressivism are, are not compatible. Those who must lead are not the ones that determine an appropriate wage. That is a subjective negotiation between two individuals. Many individuals, by the way, naturally intuit this, and those are the ones who, through hard work, will make it to a relatively better position from where they started. Even trained economists, by the way, who want to raise the minimum wage will grant the theory that I am laying out for you. They just believe that they are the ones who must lead, and so they want to give people the proper wage. In contrast to the progressive authoritarian mindset, we might consider the libertarian mindset as one that understands your wage or salary is a consequence of your ability to or create value. It is not the dictate of one who must lead, but the subjective agreement between two individuals. Of course, 
Some people will be left behind by such a system, and it is the proper place of charity to make sure that small group learn the necessary skills to achieve the highest wage they can earn. In general, people command a higher wage the older they get. According to the data, minimum wage earners usually get a raise within the first year. It's never, it is never, the same people earning the minimum wage year after year. It is new individuals starting their journey, somebody taking on a second job, or somebody reintroducing the workplace, or re, re, um, coming back into the workplace, which again would be somebody starting their journey. If a culture embraced this freedom to create value, you would see more people making gains in their personal income more quickly. We wouldn't need a minimum wage. We don't need a minimum wage. What I'm talking about here, investing in your human capital, creating new skills, working hard, is how you fight for 15 and take even more. By doing what you need to do to get ahead. There are countless books, podcasts, and corporate programs that reward those who don't ask permission but demonstrate value. While I have an immense respect for those who dedicate themselves to charity and helping people who literally cannot earn more than the mandated minimum wage, I don't write for those people. I write for free men and women who understand the call to adventure that life is, not the passive willingness to be in the service of an indifferent master. So, if you're listening to my voice right now, and you're not quite at $15 an hour yet, go fight for it. Not by protesting or demonstrating. Go fight for it by doing better than the person next to you. And once you get there, keep fighting for more. If you like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.